Welcome to season two of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Laura Egan. Laura serves as the Senior Director of Programs at the Cleary Center. At the Cleary Center, she oversees the development and execution of training and technical assistance projects, programs, and resources, including Cleary Act training seminars, webinars, and National Campus Safety Awareness Month. She presents nationally and provides individualized support on compliance and implementation of Cleary Act requirements, campus safety, compliance, and gender-based violence and discrimination. Prior to joining the Cleary Center, Laura worked at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for five years, serving both in residence life and student conduct roles. Laura earned a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Villanova University and a Master of Arts in Education and Human Development from the George Washington University. Welcome to the podcast, Laura Egan. Laura serves as the Senior Director of Programs for the Cleary Center. How's it going, Laura? Hi, Jill. It's going great. How are you doing? Great, thanks. I'm glad to be speaking with you today so close to the uh, release of our annual security reports. I think that's always a bit of a trying time in every conduct officer's life. Uh, (laughs) Yes. But before we dig into your technical expertise and all about Cleary and the Cleary Center, uh, we always like to start off our episodes by getting to know our guests a little bit. So can you tell us about your journey to this position with the Cleary Center? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, Uh, I started my professional work as a school counselor, actually, and I was at a K-8 school in Philadelphia for about three years when I was looking for a change but still wanting to stay in the field of education. And a friend of mine who was working in residence life in higher ed recommended that I look into that field just because of the transferable skills between being a counselor and working in res life. And I had been an RA in college, so she thought it would be a really great fit. And it was. And I had an awesome position in both residence life and student conduct at a higher education institution uh, right uh, in Philadelphia. And then during my time there, I was really starting to get interested in other roles that I could take on that would intersect still with higher education work, but would be a little bit more focused in a topic area. And I actually reached out to Cleary Center to ask um, if they would be down for an informational interview, essentially, because I knew their work was, you know, distinctly coming from a nonprofit lens, but intersecting with a lot of higher education pieces. And uh, when I reached out to them, that was when they shared that they were about to post for a position. Um, that was connected to working with institutions and learning a lot more about the Clery Act and helping institutions gain some of that knowledge and awareness. So um, ultimately, I applied for that position and got that position and was really excited to kind of gain a little bit more perspective on higher education and compliance in general. So I had been on a campus or at one school for, you know, that those five years. And so getting to work at Cleary gives me the opportunity to intersect with a bunch of different campuses and learn about how each campus's unique culture is impacted by these laws, Cleary being one of them, and how that creates 
specific challenges for each campus. And being somebody that enjoys problem solving, enjoys bridging different groups of people together to solve a problem or to organize around an idea or a goal, it just felt like a really perfect fit. And so I've been at Cleary for just over three years now and have really enjoyed my experience um, being able to train on Cleary, meet a bunch of different professionals from all walks of life, but also, um, you know, create some, some things that are uniquely Cleary Center in terms of educational tools as well. That's just a little bit about how I got to where I am. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Cleary Center is and what it actually does? Yeah, absolutely. So Cleary Center is a national nonprofit founded by Connie and Howard Cleary, who are the parents of Jean Cleary, who was a woman attending Lehigh University in the 80s when um, she actually was uh, brutally raped and murdered in her dorm room back in 1986 when she was a first-year student there. And Connie and Howard were really... um, upset by their loss and looked into asking a lot of questions around how did this happen and could this have been prevented. And in doing that work, um, discovered some pieces around how campuses weren't really required to share information about crimes that occurred on their campus or in the surrounding community with campus community members at all. And so they thought that that would have been a really helpful piece of information for them to know when choosing colleges for their child. And um, not even to say that they would have made a different decision necessarily, but it just would have helped them be a more informed consumer. And so in um, addition to working to develop legislation on the state and local level that ultimately became the federal law, the Cleary Act, they also founded an organization originally called Security on Campus, but now known today as Cleary Center. And so it's been around for 30 years. We just had our 30-year celebration this past spring, and um, they really were connected to the idea of having institutions be supported by people that knew the law and understood the law better. It's actually no um, secret either that Security on Campus, when it was originally founded, functioned more as a watchdog organization and reported campuses to the Department of Education that were not complying with the Cleary Act once the law was passed, or they would even file complaints on behalf of victims of sexual assault. Their rights weren't being met accurately. And that was a role that, you know, we kind of felt was needed and wanted at one time, but... It didn't really serve everyone in the best way it could because it caused us to have sort of fractured relationships with institutions of higher ed and was actually possibly re-victimizing these victims because we were acting on their behalf, kind of taking away their agency and making choices. And so we no longer serve in that watchdog capacity. We probably actually haven't filed a complaint in about 10 years. But as recently as 2015, we made a concerted effort to change our mission and vision to align more with the work we want to do today, which is working in partnership with colleges and universities to help them understand what the Clery Act requires and how they can best meet those goals with their own unique campus in mind. And so that's really a lot of the work that I do today is focused on that mission. Excellent. So how does a campus actually work with you? Do they contact you? Do you contact them? What is that partnership and what actually happens when you all link up? No, that's a great question. So campuses can intersect with us in a variety of ways. Um, One is they could just call us up at any time with any question they might have about how to comply with a certain aspect of Cleary. We would call the answer to that sort of question technical assistance. 
the more, you know, specialized term around um, following the guidance of laws or federal regulations. And so that's a function that we provide to anybody that would call. We are very clear in stating that we are not the enforcement authority of the Clery Act. So um, sometimes we would refer questions like that out to the help desk that works on behalf of the Department of Education to provide those answers. Um, but that's one thing that we would do. Um, we also do in-person trainings. We do about six to eight of those a year all across the country where anybody can sign up to attend. They range from one-day trainings to three-day trainings where we touch on all different aspects of the Clery Act, um, our one-day training trainings are a little bit more high level. Our three days are more hands-on, a lot of activities, thinking through how to apply the concepts that we're teaching. Um, and then also campuses could be just a user of one of our products. So we have multiple training videos and resources. We have online trainings and webinars that we offer all the time. Every September um, is National Campus Safety Awareness Month. So all month long, we've been holding free webinars and providing free resources um, connected to our theme of what's your message this year. So that's another way that campuses can interact with us. And then our favorite way to talk about, honestly, is our membership program. So a campus can join as a team of individuals to be a Cleary Center member, which means that they get free and discounted resources or registrations for our trainings or our webinars. And then they gain access to the network of other Cleary Center members. So if they need to ask questions and learn answers from peer institutions, they have a member portal that they can do stuff like that. So I know it's a really long answer, but <laughs> there's a lot of different ways um, that they could intersect with us and, and figure out how to get answers to the questions that they might have. And how would a conduct officer's role fit into that? Yeah, so another great point. Um, you know, I think Cleary became more relevant perhaps for conduct officers with the recent passage of the Violence Against Women Act amendments to the Cleary Act, where um, guidelines for elements of disciplinary proceedings and procedures for sexual assault, dating violence, domestic violence, and stalking incidents were outlined um, in those amendments. And so prior to that, you know, student conduct officers might have only thought of Cleary in relation to counting drug and alcohol referrals in an institution's Cleary statistics for the annual security report. And while that still is extremely important, as are the dating violence, domestic violence, stalking, and sexual assault statistics, um, I would think the area where there is more of an opportunity to have a conversation or to learn from each other is around these disciplinary procedures requirements. So um, as of, you know, the law was originally signed in 2013, and then the regulations went into effect as of 2015, there are certain elements that need to be in place in an institution's disciplinary proceedings for both students and employees when it comes to those sorts of cases. And so those pieces need to be not only part of your procedures, but they need to be grounded in policy. They need to be accurately described in your institution's annual security report policy statements. And an area that I think is often maybe a little bit overlooked is the student conduct part um, is there, but maybe an employee conduct process is not described as well. So a student conduct officer might be a really helpful resource for an HR department or an EEO office on a campus that is supporting all of that work for employees. Modeling or aligning procedures to mirror each other would be a really helpful thing to have happen. But that's how I would see um, student conduct officers today really connecting with Cleary or understanding more about the Cleary Act. 
I think most of our campuses have a dedicated clery professional who are either based in public safety or maybe in compliance or potentially even in a, a local campus law enforcement office that are really compiling all of that. Uh, but we're often the ones providing the statistics. So what right. advice would you have for conduct officers who are maybe new to working with Cleary or maybe aren't aware of some of the funkier updates that have happened in the last couple of years? You know, I think um, the first thing I would recommend is for them to become familiar with a lovely light read called the Handbook for Campus Safety and Security Reporting. It is about a 200-plus page document published by the Department of Education um, that's designed to help individuals understand the regulations of the Clery Act. Um, so it technically is, you know, sub-regulatory guidance, meaning it is not the law itself, but it is something that the Department of Education says it uses when they're conducting a program review, say, of determining whether or not a campus is fully in compliance with the Clery Act. And so there are some chapters in that handbook that might not be as relevant for student conduct officers, but when it comes to understanding how statistics are counted or classified, there's a whole chapter dedicated to walking through that. And then when it comes to thinking through maybe systems for organizing that information, that's where I really think the uh, peer pieces are such helpful resources. So connecting with others either at your campus or at similar institutions to understand what their record-keeping systems are. Um, I think that's one of the biggest areas that is yet to be fully answered under Clery is what is, you know, the best way to store your information. There is never going to be probably, you know, like one fix-all um, solution through a CRM or something like that. So there's always going to be a need to do some manual reconciliation with numbers and information or reports. And so if you were new to Cleary on a campus, I would really recommend just having a partnership with your Title IX coordinator, with your public safety office, with your Cleary coordinator, if that exists at your school, um, to make sure that you all have open lines of communication at a minimum with talking through reports that come through and how you're coding them, recording them, documenting them, classifying them, um, because that element of manual uh, reconciliation will always kind of need to be an element, I think, of proper record keeping under Cleary. Cleary is really the law, but I think the spirit of the law is really allowing our campus communities to know about what happens in terms of crimes of violence or other concerns. But I think that the report, the ASR, is something that scares the life into a lot of us uh, every October in terms of compliance because the fines are so heavy. Um, so can you speak a little bit to um, how we can help conduct officers dispel the myth that this is one of the scariest things that we do? Yeah, sure. No, I think that's a really great point. You know, I think um, a couple of things are often heard or said about ASRs. One is, you know, no one ever reads this. I spend so much time making sure it looks great, and I don't think anybody's caring or taking the time to read it or pay attention. And then, yeah, the other half of it is, you know, I'm just so scared that I'm not doing the right thing. So my response to that first part would be really connected to thinking through how you might not think anybody is reading your ASR now, but God forbid something were to happen at your institution, a lot of people would be looking at that ASR because it is one commonly referred to outward-facing document that has a lot of information about what your campus says it's going to do when a certain incident takes place. A lot of my work right now is spent answering questions from students or student reporters that call wanting to know if their institution was 
quote unquote, out of compliance because they did or didn't issue a warning or include a statistic in this column. And so providing a lot of awareness for them about what campuses are required to do or not is critical. But it tells me that they are reading at a minimum your annual security report and that at a maximum the law itself and what the law is requiring. So I would say know that it might be being read more than you think it is. Um, It just might not be that relevant to you. Um, But in terms of the scary factor, you know, I try to use the metaphor, like if you reflect on your time in high school algebra class when you had to maybe fold the paper in half and show the work on the right-hand side of the page, like how you got that answer, that's what your ASR is for your campus. It is just the proof of the work that you're already doing. So at the end of the day, everything in that ASR should be a complete accurate reflection of the things that are happening on your campus, which are hopefully aligned with what Clery requires. So in terms of it being scary, the burden or the onus of the scary part should not necessarily be just on you as much as it should be on the institution if there's a fear that something that's in that is either not accurate or not aligned with Clery. But the spirit there is about, you know, transparency and accountability. Clery is written as a consumer protection law to promote that spirit of open communication between the institution and the campus community members. And the ASR is one concrete way that that is actualized. Think of it as an opportunity to be really helpful and clear with your students and parents or staff about all the things that your campus is doing to create a safe environment or a welcoming environment, all the things that you're doing to create prevention and response um, actions for violence prevention at your institution. So I would hope that if there are concerns about anything in that ASR being inaccurate or being not aligned with Clery, my recommendation would be to go to the people at your institution that are connected to Clery compliance that are maybe not just you in student conduct to let them know of your concerns and to see if there is anything that could be done to bridge and under a gap of understanding between the people that are putting that information in there and those that are saying, you know, it's good to go from my perspective. And a lot of us are writing that section where we talk about what our institutions will do or those resolution sections, uh, you know, available sanctions, uh, and like I said, statistics. So do you have any good writing tips for what has, what you've seen in terms of what makes a strong ASR? Yeah, you know, I think the, a large part of my time is spent reviewing ASRs. And I think one area that I see people falling into a lot is wanting to just lift completely a policy and put it in the ASR for exactly what you were talking about earlier, Jill, a fear of missing something or of not including an element that they think they should have. Um, And what I see happening there is creating kind of more confusion for folks because then we are not summarizing that information. We're just giving a full-on policy that might have a lot of superfluous information beyond what's required. And I would, you know, really recommend thinking through if we as professionals cannot summarize this policy, how is a 19 or 20 year old that's possibly the victim of a traumatic event expected to really? I would say my tip would be to try to simplify and remove any um, terminology that's very jargony from those explanations and try to make the 
summaries or the elements that you're including read as clearly and plainly to the general public as possible. Because the ASR is designed to be something that a parent could read, that a student could read, that another staff member at your institution that doesn't live in the work all the time can read. So sometimes I think the best activity to do for that is once you've written something, ask somebody else that completely is not connected to the work to review it for you. So a peer review on the professional level, a peer review from students even could be really helpful to just give you that feedback on whether or not this sounds good, this looks clear, or sorry, looks good, sounds clear to to the average reader. And, you know, I think just to a certain extent, any sort of structural help there. So headings, uh, breaking out the paragraphs, uh, a visual image, anything that breaks up just a bunch of text is always helpful at any part of the ASR. So I want to take kind of a giant step back because I'm having this realization in our conversation. Uh, a good chunk of our audience that listens to our podcast are not United States-based professionals. Uh, probably about okay. 10 to 15% of our audience are listening from all over the world. We have listeners from Canada, from Germany, from South Africa. Um, It's a pretty broad cross-section of listeners. And so can we back up even further and just kind of first self-identify? I understand, listeners, this episode is pretty ethnocentric to our U.S. professionals, and so I appreciate you bearing with us through that. But also, we've used a couple of abbreviations. You and I have said ASR like 100 times now. Um, Can Mm. we go back and clarify what some of these abbreviations are? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And, you know, Jill might already specify this um, in another way as well in advertising the podcast, but Query, you know, is really specific just to U.S.-based institutions that receive Title IV funding um, in terms of federal financial aid. So foreign institutions are not required to adhere to it, except many campuses that are based in the U.S. might have a separate campus um, abroad. And so those institutions, you know, would be required to fully comply with all aspects of Query. But yes, when we say things like ASR, we are talking about an annual security report, which is a document that the Clery Act requires institutions publish each year by October 1st. And that annual security report contains two major elements. One is a set of crime statistics, Clery crime statistics, which are crimes that meet the definition of a Clery crime that were reported to a campus security authority. That's another acronym for you, a CSA, which is a reporting party defined in the law as well, that occurred within Cleary geography. So certain um, defined parts of an institution's property or buildings um, that, again, the Cleary Act specifies and defines. So those statistics, again, one part of the ASR, Cleary crimes reported to a CSA that occurred within Cleary geography, And then the other part of an annual security report are what we call policy statements. And those are essentially summaries of existing policies at the institution in various aspects of campus safety. And so that ranges from talking through how one can report a crime to fire safety if you have on-campus residence halls to response, prevention, and disciplinary procedures for cases of dating violence, domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking. So those are the two major content areas of an annual security report. And yes, due by October 1st each year. And when we say due, uh, we actually also mean to our whole campus community. We're turning it into everybody that might have a stake in our institutions. So they are very, very public. Yes. Yes, absolutely. 
you mentioned something that I think is really an interesting component of Cleary, which is if you have a campus that is U.S.-based but located abroad, uh, I think that is one of the most uh, difficult technically aspects of reporting that we do have under our Cleary obligations. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen institutions be most successful in reporting uh, when you have a campus that's not in U.S. territory? Sure, yeah. I think that it's really important to note the type of ownership or control you have of that physical space abroad because the way that that um, agreement or ownership, like the way it's written out, uh, determines your obligations under Cleary. So Cleary, in terms of uh, space, is really concerned with what a written agreement for use of space says. And so as a United States-based institution, you might have some properties abroad that would fall under a category that's called non-campus property, which means that you own or control space there that is used for an educational purpose, like a class that is frequently used by students, um, but you don't really have anything going on there beyond that element. But then on top of that, you might have something that rises to the level of what we would call a separate campus under Cleary. And a separate campus would be one that has a formal organized program of study and an administrative presence at a building or property that is under controlled by the institution for educational purposes. You sound like you've said that before. <laughs> yes, just a couple of times, yeah. So, you know, the, the distinction there is just that non-campus is a little bit less formalized in terms of the presence of the institution there. It literally could just be that you're using that space to teach a class and that's it. The separate campus would be, you know, a little bit higher um, in terms of administrative structure. You would have your own budget, your own hiring authority, possibly for a separate campus. So um, when it comes to reporting, what you would want to be most concerned about is who, if anyone, at either of those locations would fall under this category of a campus security authority. So somebody that either works for public safety or security or has been given duties that are likened to being an access monitor that even if they don't fall under a campus public safety or campus security office, um, or anyone to whom the institution has directed folks to report crimes to, and then that ever-popular fourth category of CSAs, an official with significant responsibility for student and campus activities. And so if you have anybody that would fall under one of those four categories at either a non-campus location or a separate campus abroad, they would be responsible for reporting to whatever crime collection body is designated at that location or at that institution crimes reported to them. And so that can be really challenging, particularly when you're talking about, um, you know, as a CSA, you know that your role probably goes a little bit beyond just taking the report. While, while Cleary might not require more of you in operationalizing that role, you're going to be talking to the reporting party, you're going to be connecting them with resources. And if you're abroad, that might mean getting immediate physical help in that moment in terms of local resources, and it might also be sharing with them institutional resources, like this is what happens next in terms of a discipline process or a conduct process, um, or the types of accommodations you could receive either here or when you return to the U.S.-based campus. 
And so that's a lot of different components to take into account for sure. And so I think um, the, the best thing to make sure that you're doing is identifying who your CSAs are in those abroad locations and making sure that they are trained and aware of their role and any referrals that they would need to make for individuals. Another thing that I know campuses really are doing well currently is training students that are going to study abroad about all the resources available to them in the local community and at the campus um, abroad should they be the victim of any sort of crime. And some campuses even go so far as to educating students on the local laws of the country or region that they're going to be studying in so that they know should they find themselves in a situation, this is how that area would handle this type of an incident. So it's a lot of collaboration that would need to happen um, with your study abroad offices, with your clery coordinator to make sure that reports are getting accurately counted and reported and shared with the institution. And then it really comes down to knowing, you know, what that space is classified as abroad because that would help determine where those reports ultimately would fall for the campus in terms of which set of statistics they would go under. What would you say to campuses uh, who have locations abroad that are identified as those campus, second campuses, essentially? So I'm thinking about my prior institutions like NYU Shanghai or NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, I'm thinking about places like George Mason in Seoul or Yale Singapore. Uh, American University just opened two campuses in Malta and Armenia. Uh, For these locations where when we try to go to local law enforcement to get the statistics to make reports and we're either shut down or ignored, um, what advice do you give to those campuses? That's a great element, too, Jill. I wasn't sure if I should bring it up because I didn't want to confuse folks, but I am like glad that you did because that means that it's okay to talk about it. So, um, so the other level, too, with you know your campuses abroad is um, depending on if you have a non-campus property um, or a separate campus, you know, an obligation under Cleary is to request local statistics from those areas. Um, And that would be, you know, you would do that for your campus locations in the United States as well. So every um, time you're publishing your statistics, you would do a request um, for your local law enforcement to say, have you received any reports of Cleary crimes that have occurred in Cleary geography? So this answer, you know, applies to the requests you would make domestically as well as internationally. It is not a requirement for local law enforcement anywhere to give that information to campuses. It is a requirement for campuses to request it. And so um, if you can document that you have made that request, even if you don't receive an answer back, that is okay, um, as long as you would be able to demonstrate that you made the good faith effort to request that information. Um, I would say, you know, you might be surprised at the responses that you do get. I think it helps if you send the request in the native language of the country that you're requesting it from. Um, But sometimes what happens is a little bit of a misunderstanding, especially when it comes to the geography. If there are campuses with separate campuses abroad, then you have to think about, you know, non-campus public property and on-campus property. And so some campuses have a difficult time translating the non-campus part of things or public property part of things. But regardless, all you're required to do is request for that information. If you get a response, you want to do the best you can to verify that that information falls in line with what Cleary is requiring. You don't need to necessarily verify that that actual incident took place or was reported. You know, you're taking it on the word of the law enforcement entity that's sharing that information with you. But yeah, if you're getting, you know, not uh, no response, that is okay as long as you can demonstrate that you made the request in the first place. 
And what about online institutions, institutions that maybe uh, like Argosy or something like that run their entire operation without physical property except for an administration building? Yeah, so if you have completely online classes and you have no physical footprint, you would not be required to comply with Clery in terms of providing statistics or NASR, anything like that. Um, no physical footprint, you are not required to comply with Clery. If there is an administration building, I actually don't fully know the answer to that question, Jill. Um, I know that the way it's described in the handbook is that if there is no physical footprint at all, you don't have any obligation. I'm not sure how uh, the Department of Ed would view just the administrative building. I could see them arguing that that part is your campus, maybe your core campus. But if no students are actually physically present there, I could actually see the converse argument. So that one I would um, leave as a, as a question to direct to the Department of Education for sure. But I know that if you have a completely online you know, facility, well, not facility, a completely online setup situation for your institution, then you are not required to comply with Clery. I got to say, I feel a little bit fancy that I asked a question that you maybe hadn't got before. <laughs> that never happens for you. <laughs> So, uh, Laura, I really appreciate kind of all of this technical guidance that you've given on Cleary itself. What about when Cleary has intersections with other laws? Uh, I know, for example, the Violence Against Women Act has some very interesting specifications around uh, campus-based reporting that sometimes intersect and overlap with our Cleary CSA requirement, but are not the same. Um, so how do you all help campuses navigate those intersections? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Um, when the VAWA amendments to Cleary were passed back in 2013, there was a lot of conversation around whether or not that act in and of itself prohibited institutions from fully complying with other laws like Title IX or FERPA. And we had to do a lot of myth-busting around that because the truth is it, they really don't prevent institutions from complying with those other laws at all. There are some areas where both Cleary and Title IX say the same thing or call for the same thing, but use different terms to do that. And even that is kind of sort of in limbo right now, considering the rescinded guidance from the Dear Colleague letter and the 2014 Q&A doc um, that were rescinded last year by the Department of Education. But still, even um, putting that aside, there are still aspects of Title IX and Cleary that speak to the same concept. So they both identify a reporting authority. You know, under Title IX, we have responsible employees. Under the Cleary Act, we have CSAs. Um, they both talk about the requirement for those individuals to share information that is reported to them. For Cleary, it's a very specific set of individuals that is required to share information across a broad range of crime categories, whereas Title IX, it's a broader category of reporting party with a much narrower focus in terms of what they need to report, and that is, you know, of course, anything related to sex or gender-based discrimination, of which sexual violence is a part. We always like to highlight here that, you know, your Title IX coordinator is a really important person at your institution because they are a bridge between these two systems or these two laws in that they are a CSA themselves. And so um, if you are in student conduct, I would really suggest having a great relationship um, with your Title IX coordinator or at least one where you feel like you could ask some questions and talk across reports or concerns um, that you would have around collecting information or sharing information. And a big distinction to 
is, you know, under the Clery Act, technically, you are not required to share any personally identifiable information in reports, whereas under Title IX, you are required to share all information that you are aware of in connection to an instance or a report of sex or gender-based discrimination um, or, uh, you know, violence. And so this comes up more when you have individuals that fall under the category of both CSA and responsible employee, because while under Cleary, they might not be required to share personally identifiable information, if they are also a responsible employee themselves, then they would need to share all the information that they are aware of in terms of a report. So it's really helpful to be clear with your campuses as to what roles they have and what their obligations are under those roles. Sometimes when it comes to reporting also, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding that, you know, reporting in general is breaking trust or is, you know, divulging information that was supposed to be kept in a certain way. And I always try to preach the message of like flipping the script on reporting or sharing information is breaking trust as opposed to like it is the most helpful and trusting thing you could do for that individual because to not do that sells the false narrative that you are the only person that can help that individual and you're going to take that burden on as a person. And so that actually isn't accurate because of all of the varying needs that somebody has when they experience any sort of crime. You know, there's no one person could satisfy all the needs of another person when they are the victim of some sort of traumatic event, um, whether that be, you know, a motor vehicle theft, an ag assault, sexual assault, or stalking. And so in not sharing information or not reporting information, you could be doing more harm than good, possibly. So I know that's a little bit off of what the exact question was, but I I do see some importance in just making sure that folks understand that there is really nothing with those VAWA amendments to Cleary that prohibits or precludes individuals from fully complying with other aspects of Title IX or FERPA. And just to clarify, you mentioned ag assault. Are you referring to aggravated assault in that context? Oh, gosh, yes. So sorry. Yes, aggravated assault. There, I did the thing that I said you shouldn't do with ASRs. So that is what you should not do. (laughs) I think that sometimes in higher education, uh, we get so lost in the technical aspects and compliance aspects of what we do, especially on the conduct side, that uh, we can... In, in these contexts, sometimes forget that the whole point of this is to protect our humans. Um, the whole point of this is to let our human beings know that we are caring about their safety, we're caring about um, their campus environment, and making sure that they can come to school and focus on learning and engagement. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think it's a really important component to kind of just throw in there for this because this has been mm-hmm. uh, an amazingly helpful technical episode, but we, we do this because we want our students to have good experiences at the end of the day. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Laura, do you have any other tips or tricks or hot takes for the conduct officer lens on Cleary? You know, I just think I would really want to thank all the conduct officers that are listening because I do think they are sometimes the unsung heroes of Cleary compliance. And when we talk about compliance, too, I'm glad you brought this up, Jill, about like the spirit part of things because. I think the unique thing about particularly the VAWA amendments to Cleary is if you actually read through it and ask what it's fully requiring institutions to do, um, granted it can seem really challenging because it is a lot and it's an unfunded mandate by the federal government, but it thought through a lot of the pieces that are what we would think of as spirit pieces. 
it doesn't just say make sure you have a prevention program. It talks about what your prevention programs should look like and sound like and who they should be for and that all students and employees are entitled to this and that employees are important from not just the lens of supporting students but as potential victims themselves. And so with all of that, you know, I think it's often the people that are on the ground that see where there might be some gaps between what an institution says it does and what it actually is doing in terms of procedures or how, you know, policies are written or how those policies are communicated to students or how decisions are, you know, made in terms of conduct cases. You're often in a tough position because you might be considered entry or mid-level positions that don't necessarily have access to bringing voice to those concerns, but do anyway because you do care about students and you do care about the community at your institution. So Clery Center thanks you, and I know all folks that work around violence prevention um, work would thank you because that type of advocacy benefits all students, you know, potential victims, potential accused students or um, respondents, you know, it would really be beneficial for anybody to draw attention to any sort of inequity or gaps that you're noticing. And I just know from firsthand experience that, you know, when you're doing the work in and out, you're the ones that would be the first to notice. So, you know, thank you for even tuning into this podcast today to learn more about an area that might not be something you intersect with all the time, but that, you know, intersects with your work enough that it's important to pay attention to. And then just kind of a final thought for you or question. I know that Howard Cleary has since passed, but in thinking about Jean Cleary's parents and your work with them specifically, what is their take, and not asking you to speak for them, but just your experience with them, uh, what is your take on how they view the evolution of all of this today? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, Connie is an incredible force to witness. Um, That is uh, Jean's mom, who has really just made her whole life about working to ensure, to the extent that she can, that there are as few uh, genes um, in terms of victims as possible. And I would think that, you know, again, not to speak for her, I know that she has never perceived that the battle is over. Um, She really wants to continue to work and to support work that creates safer campuses for truly all students. And she has often acknowledged, and I actually believe it's a quote in one of our videos, that there are a lot of Jean Clearies out there. And what she doesn't say, but what I think she is referring to is that we might not even know about. And we want to know about those stories, and we want to make sure that we support all individuals that could be the victim of any sort of crime on a campus. And half of that support is making sure that folks are informed about what violence looks like in and around your campus and what efforts are put in place by your institution to prevent and respond to them. So I know from Connie's perspective, you know, she's really proud of all the work we've accomplished, but there is still so much more to do, and we really want to be a part of the conversation. Well, we like to close out all of our episodes by asking our guests what you are currently reading. Oh, yes. So, um, Totally not planned, but I did just finish reading the memoir Educated um, a couple of weeks ago, um, and that was actually a really interesting read. For those of you that don't know, it's about this child. She's actually a woman reflecting back on her life growing up in Idaho and by parents that may or may not have had mental health concerns, may be influenced by some religiosity pieces 
But she basically talks about the idea that she had no idea the context of the world that she was living in because she didn't attend formal school and she was only being fed messages from parents that were a little bit eccentric, in, to put it lightly. And so she exposes herself to formal education for the first time at, at college. And so it is fascinating for her to talk about the supports that she did receive from administrators and professors at prestigious universities, both here and abroad, ironically, um, and how that helped to reframe the way she approaches her life and her family and the world. And so, again, totally not planned, but um, I thought it was a really interesting read, especially at the start of a new academic year for our traditional two-semester campuses, to just think about the influence that higher education really could have on a life and on a community and or on a family and how all the roles that we play are really powerful and cool in that way to be a part of somebody's life in a, in a transformative way. So I highly recommend it, although I would say like a huge disclaimer that there is a lot of, you know, violent pieces that are described, some physical abuse, some emotional abuse. So um, just as a warning that that is a part of the content of the book. Can you repeat the title and author again? Sure. It is Educated and it's a memoir by Tara Westover. And if we'd like to reach you after the podcast ends, how can listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, no, I would say my email address would be the best way to reach me. And so that's just L-E-G-A-N at clearycenter.org. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Or you can email us at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Laura, for sharing your viewpoint today. Thank you so much, Jill. I had a great experience. In two weeks on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Dr. Chris Linder. Dr. Linder currently serves as an associate professor in the higher education program at the University of Georgia, where she focuses her research on intersectional and power conscious ways for universities to address sexual violence on college campuses. She also has a new book out, which we'll discuss that it might be a great read for all of our conduct professionals. We hope you come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. 